Hey guys, welcome to In the Trenches, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to entrepreneurs and CEOs running small to medium-sized businesses. Today, I will again be interviewing somebody who I think has the potential to improve, or at the very least inform, some aspect of your personal or professional life. If you want access to the show notes from this episode, please visit inthetrenches.net forward slash podcast. Within the show notes are a few things that I hope will be useful for you, including a list of all the questions that I asked, as well as where to skip to in the audio to listen to any given question, links to each of the resources that we discuss, which most frequently include books to read, and finally, a written transcript of our discussion so that you can download it to highlight, copy, take notes, or otherwise use as you see fit. Finally, if any of my episodes have provided you with something of value, it would be much appreciated if you could leave a quick rating on the Apple Podcast app or wherever you happen to listen to this podcast. It'll take you less than 30 seconds, and not only will your ratings give me valuable feedback, but more and better ratings help me attract better guests, which I ultimately hope will benefit you. Okay, let's jump into today's show. So my guest today is a particularly personal and a particularly special one for me. I have been fortunate enough to call Jim Sharp a mentor and a friend for over 10 years now, and I am totally thrilled that he agreed to join the podcast. I suspect some of you listening have also been lucky enough to benefit from Jim's wisdom and experience over the years as well. So in Today's episode, we discuss the realities of running a business during high inflation environments, including the risks and opportunities that may present themselves during such times. We also discuss how CEOs should think about pricing their products and services in response to inflationary pressures. And finally, we discuss how they should deal with vendors who attempt to pass through price increases to them. Now, as of this recording in June 2022, the annual inflation rate last month was 8.6%, which is its highest recorded level since 1981. So needless to say, this is quite topical and I suspect very much top of mind for CEOs everywhere right now. For those who may be unaware, Jim has been at the Harvard Business School since 2009, holding positions as a senior lecturer in the MBA and executive education programs, an entrepreneur in residence, and now as a visiting executive. In 1987, Jim purchased Extrusion Technology, an aluminum extrusion fabricator that he ran as CEO for over 20 years. In 2008, Jim sold the company to a private equity firm, having grown the company from $4 million to $32 million in revenue throughout his ownership tenure. Jim is now an active investor in small and medium-sized businesses, holding ownership positions in more than 50 entrepreneurial companies. Without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Jim Sharp. Jim Sharp, welcome to the show. Thanks, Steve. Happy to be here. It's uh, it's my pleasure. It truly is. Um, for, for those that don't know, I've been fortunate enough to count Jim as a friend and mentor for over 10 years now, and, and I've learned an incredible amount from him. Um, so Jim, I know your story very well, and I suspect many of our listeners do. Um, however, for those that don't, maybe it would make sense for us to just kind of set the table and set the context and have you share with our listeners your entrepreneurial story, and you can take that in any direction that you'd like. Well, Steve, you know, the question was interesting because initially after, while I was in college, I joined a startup and I worked there for six years, uh, both uh, during college and after college, and concluded when I applied for my MBA that I never wanted to go back to the startup entrepreneurial crazy world. Uh, and uh, after graduating from H- HPS, went to work for the General Electric Company, thinking that this is where I want to be. I want to be in big companies. Fortunately, GE gave me some opportunities to run small, medium-sized businesses, and I felt pretty entrepreneurial. And as time went on, I concluded I'd really rather be running a single small business than working for a big company. So the entrepreneurial bug kind of came and went, and, and uh, it was exciting to see that. 
I'm a mid-career self-funded searcher. Six years after getting my MBA, I searched with a partner uh, for about six or eight months and the deal fell apart. It was a great learning lesson for me and decided I'd do it eventually. And indeed, four years later, uh, launched a uh, 10 and a half month search and successfully acquired an aluminum manufacturing boat in company in the Boston area. It was a $2 million transaction. There were no investors. I invested $100,000 in cash. The seller put in 65% of the, uh, in a seller note and the rest was financed by a bank. And 21 late years later, I, I sold it to a private equity firm and enjoyed during those uh, 20 years, a long-term hold, great results. The $4 million in revenue business that I bought ended up having 35 million when I sold it. And uh, it was a, a great exit uh, for me and uh, shared some of it with the employees at the end. And after selling the business, did nothing for a year, decided to join HPS as a, as a professor, did that for three years, and now spend a lot of my time giving back to the community, either writing blogs or mentoring or investing in the, uh, in the various search models. So happy to, uh, happy to use some of that experience as we talk a little bit about my, my favorite topic, which is pricing. But well, 20 years running a business and growing it by many multiples, as you just articulated, we all have a lot to learn from you. Before we dive into um, kind of the topic du jour, I want to talk about the failed transaction and the several years that elapsed before you successfully consummated the deal that you did and bought the company that you ended up running for 20 plus years. Maybe just likely because this is uh, likely to resonate with a lot of our listeners. A failed deal, especially one that kind of falls apart in the late stages, is quite a heartbreaker. And not a lot of people understand just how emotionally difficult that can be, um, especially when you start to picture yourself running that business. So can you just walk us through maybe how or why that deal fell through and how you were able to manage the emotional impact that that surely had on you? It was devastating. Um, I remember my partner calling me up and saying, in three weeks, we're going to close, Jim. And uh, I've made a decision not to do this. I'm going to go off to, uh, to Texas and take a job as the CEO of a, of a multi-billion dollar company. Um, and I don't think you're going to be able to do this on your own. But uh, I wanted to tell you, and I'm sorry I didn't do it sooner. So I was facing not only giving up the, the goal of being the general manager of a business in Vermont that was a plastic injection molding business. I knew where I was going to park. I knew what I was going to be doing on the first day and the first year and the first five years. It was exciting to me to be an owner and it had just fallen all apart. Uh, I learned that probably a great lesson that I wasn't a partnering kind of guy should really understand didn't really understand what my partner's objectives were and didn't talk enough about it. But it, it was also very centering to me. I knew I wanted to do it. I'd learned some great skills about negotiating and doing the due diligence and outreaching to, uh, to sellers. Um, so when I start restarted it again four years later, I was very well equipped. So I'm a, a fail-to-find searcher who, uh, who eventually succeeded at it. But the learning was was important to me. Don't have a partner in my case. It would, that made sense. Uh, live locally to where I was going to be looking for a business. Uh, have enough cash to be able to afford to, to buy it and to do the search. So I felt those levels of comfort that were, were there. Um, we moved, uh, my wife and I, from the Midwest to, uh, to the East Coast to be where we wanted to be. Picked a zip code that uh, was important for us to live at. So really got our life in order so that we were really ready to do that, uh, that second search, which was successful. Well, I mean, um, part of the heartbreak that is almost inevitable for entrepreneurs and CEOs that almost no external observer witnesses mm -hmm. or pays attention to or is even aware of. Um, so uh, really amazing that you were able to bounce back from that. Um, now, what, what we're here to talk about today, Jim, is the realities of running 
businesses in inflationary environments, something that you have a lot of experience in, certainly as an investor, uh, but as an operator, as a CEO yourself. So just again, to set the context for the listeners, what was happening you know, when you were running your company in a high inflation environment? Just kind of set the picture for us. What was happening from a macroeconomic standpoint? How bad was it from an inflation standpoint? How long did it last? Just kind of set the table for us if you can. So I'll go back to running an SME in inflationary times. I was working for GE at the time. I was in, a, in Virginia selling products to the coal mines. Inflation was at a 10 to 15% range at the end of the 1970s. And I was a fresh young MBA trying to run a business and not really understanding kind of what inflation meant and had a, a, a division executive fly in in the executive jet to a little small town in Bristol, Virginia and do a business review. And one of the things he asked at the time was, what's your, what's your plan for pricing increases? And I said, I'm very worried about this. We could lose some customers. I'm, I'm going to try a 5% price increase and see how it works. And he says, it should be double that. And I want to know what the results are in three months. And I said, you know, I'm really uncomfortable with that. I, we, we could really lose some business. And salespeople are telling me this is the wrong thing to do. And I think we can try to keep ahead of it with our cost structure and efficiencies. He said, I want you to do it. Report back to me in three, in three months and tell me how it went. Took off in the plane and that was it. Three months later, after I implemented a 10% price increase, I called him and said, 9.95% of it worked. How did you know that, that it would be successful when I wasn't sure? And he said to me, Jim, you know, when you're a thousand miles away from a business, not there in it like you are, it's a lot easier to raise your prices. Mm. So the, the truth, the lesson was kind of, look, you got to be ahead of this and you got to work at it. And it might take some external push beside your employees or your, your CFO or the customers or your vendors to, to make you do it. So it, it was kind of a, a great lesson on somebody else's nickel. And he was right. Uh, and uh, that was my experience with, uh, with high inflationary times. In my own business, uh, those lessons were ingrained in me. So when, when pr prices began to go up or inflation began to happen again in the, uh, after the dot-com bubble around that time, there was some additional inflationary pressures. I was ahead of it and knew what to do. You know, I've noticed as I've transitioned from CEO to investor, the truth of what you just said, which is to say that when you are an inch above the ground, so to speak, as a CEO, <laughs> often you are just too close and too emotionally attached to the day-to-day -to, -day to see certain things clearly. Now, as an investor who has some distance, so to speak, between myself and the business, what seem like very obvious decisions to me are much less obvious to the entrepreneurs in question. And the same was true when I was running my business, when we, Jim, were talking about price increases. And I had similar worries to you. Um, but again, as someone who not only has experience, but also distance, you were able to just see things much more clearly than I was able to, partially by virtue of the simple fact that you were just further away from the day-to-day -day than I was. Yep makes a big difference uh, when you're right there. It's much more personal. And, you know, if you're the, the, the one there, no one's kind of watching over your shoulder, making sure that that happens, that division manager is not there swooping in. Do you recall what your costs were doing? So you said 10 to 15% inflation, which is, which is pretty darn high. Uh, we're recording this in June, 2022. I think the most recent read was somewhere in the eight to 9% neighborhood. Um, do you recall what your costs were doing at the time? And did that have any impact on the price increases that you decided to pass through to your customers? So Steve, there's, there's always a lag. You know, when, when these times happen, you read the paper every day and you see little leading indicators that, you know, prices are going up. Our costs indeed began to go up. Um, it, we didn't, it wasn't sure how long it would last. So you hoped that they would level off and go back down. You hoped that the increase from your metals vendor was, was gonna turn them around and, and they would go back down a, a month later. And that, that lag exists. You know, your accounting system is not telling you all of the truth about what's happening that uses generally standard costs. 
the standard costs are set at the beginning of the year. So you have to dig in and find the price variations from your purchases. They don't get recorded immediately. They get recorded kind of as the invoices get paid, built into the system. Uh, and initially, I had a rule of, you know, if things were going bad over a three-month period in terms of profitability, I'd take some action. But I learned pretty quickly that when costs were going up, I needed to take action sooner. And the old fallback of, well, maybe I'll go get more volume to cover the margin that's being lost because of the margin percentages being eroded. Uh, volume just takes much longer to deal with. Price of it, cost efficiencies are another opportunity to improve margins. That's a hope also, not necessarily the best strategy. They take a long time. So the only thing you're left with is going back to your customers and attempting to pass those costs along. And if the lag is set in too long, it's dangerous. What, as you look back on your time, both at GE and in your aluminum extrusion business, um, what are some of the biggest mistakes you made or maybe the regrets that you have specific to managing the company or shepherding the company through a high inflation environment? What would you do differently if you could do it all over again? So the first thing that happens when, when you see these inflationary spikes is your employees start coming to you and saying, I can go down the street and get more money. What are you going to do for me? What, 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 you know, my, I'm paying more money for gas. I'm paying more money for groceries. How can you address this with me? When I was at GE, it was a little different. There was a structure that I could fall on with the aluminum business. I didn't have those procedures in place. I didn't have a, an annual review program where we could talk to employees on an annual basis about wage adjustments. I didn't have the compensation studies that proved that things were in place. So I kind of, the mistakes I made was reacting to Joe who showed up and was the most verbal kind of requester because I was worried that Joe would leave. And, you know, this wasn't GA anymore. Why were these people still working for me as a small, medium-sized company? And why did they even come to, come to work? Why what was I going to be able to hold on to them if, if their wages weren't, weren't accurate? So I, I regret that I hadn't put the, the procedures in place for wage adjustments that I could turn to employees and say, look, let's wait. Next February, we're going to have a wage review. We'll have done the market basket review, and there'll be an adjustment for everyone based at that time. So just hang in there. But I reacted more immediately and got into trouble with employees who felt that they didn't ask and consequently weren't uh, uh, making things happen. Mm -hmm. um, second mistake was uh, finally getting around to raising prices, but not raising them high enough and having to make a very difficult decision to go do it again and then waiting too long for the second time. So not only waiting too long the first time, but also not raising them high enough and having to be embarrassed going back to my customers and, and saying, I have to do this again. Um, the third thing, third mistake I made was I wasn't strong enough with my vendors to say just no, I won't accept this price increase now and begin to look around and, and trade them off because what I discovered was some of them were prepared for that negotiation element and would offer something up. How about half of the increase now and half of it six months from now? And I'd say, oh, that's interesting. How about a quarter of it now and a quarter of it a year from now? Um, and I, I wasn't kind of attuned to pushing back on some of those, those increases that came our way and learned a lot from that because I was going to be in the same boat with my customers who might be saying the same thing to hear what our vendors were saying to us at the time. You know, the first thing that you said really resonated with me, which is being too reactive to employee requests. I found that, <laughs> you know, I, I did the same thing naturally. Uh, I don't have nearly as many years of experiences as you do with respect to operating, but I, that your, your comment resonated with me. Um, I made the same mistake many times. And I think what I failed to appreciate at the time was if... Uh, employee A or employee B came into my office and asked for a raise and I was fearful of them leaving, I would give them the raise and I would kind of comfort myself by saying, well, you know, this is confidential. No one will find out. But of <laughs> course, in 100% of the cases, everybody found out. Uh, there's just a way that information like this tends to work itself through the grapevine. And what one employee gets every other employee 
comes to expect, at least in my experience. Yes. And it's not a fair and equitable system for your employees. They shouldn't have to beg you for uh, a raise. You should be able to take care of them ahead of time. And those systems are available, but they're easy not to implement in the early stages of, of ownership of your own company. There's a lot of things going on and kind of getting the handbook squared away and getting those levels assigned and wage structure assigned so people know how much they're going to be paid, how to get ahead, how to get a raise, how what happens when they top out, what happens if they get a promotion and it's to a lesser kind of responsible job. Those things are important to them to, to have in place. Now, you said that eventually you benefited from leaning on procedures and policies as it relates to um, wages and specifically increases to wages. Yes. Once you had that, you know, eventually, once you had that infrastructure in place, did you find, like, did it work? Was oh, it effective? It, it was amazingly effective. I, I, I'd seen it at GE work. I didn't think I was big enough to put it together, but I went to the local state-funded kind of resource services for small, medium-sized companies and said, I need some help with this. And they said, oh, there's that guy over there who does these all the time for companies. So we'll help you with the levels that needed to be in place, the quartiles about how you move up through the, through the, the entire level, the wage base, the wage ceiling, uh, all those worked effectively for me. Job descriptions had to be written. They had to be kind of judged. And then we would go out for a, every two years, an annual uh, a review of our wage structure in a competitive arena. And I used to have a, a discussion with the employees at least once a year about being a fireman. Uh, my supervisors would just go crazy because I would say, look, our company is not going to be able to pay you the same wage that you get going down the street and becoming joining the fire station. You can get paid more money there. And if we want a lot to be paid more money, you should go be a fire person. Do that. It's okay with me. Um, but here's what our structure is. Our benefits are better than average. Our wages might be a little lower. And this is a great place to look, to work. And uh, so I learned the narrative to kind of let employees understand what our objectives were as a, as a company. So we've talked about pricing uh, a few times. So that, that's where I want to go next. Um, at the risk of asking too general of a question, I mean, at a high level, how should entrepreneurs think about pricing their products or service in an inflationary environment? And is your view on this colored at all by situations in which the input costs actually aren't rising by all that much? So it's more of a opportunistic uh, price increase than it is a necessary price increase. Yeah, there's a challenge around uh, our kind of, you know, thinking about Amazon and, and Walmart's uh, kind of everyday pricing kinds of mode where, you know, many companies are really focused on best pricing. And I, I, my general philosophy in medium small size business is that you want the customers that will recognize the value that you offer and their willingness to pay is high their willingness to see that you're offering value to them and their ability to pay it is because of their competitive arena high. I'd much rather have five medium-sized customers than one big customer who's only focused on cost. So you can get easily trapped in running your business that you can grow it with revenue, but I'd rather grow my businesses and the business that I was in to be profitable first and then to be growing fast. So it was more important for me to, to look at that. And during non-inflationary times, it, it's kind of easy to kind of sit back and say, oh gosh, I don't have to go through the annual price review. But I disagree with that. I know everybody has a birthday. And once a year, they have, they have a birthday. So once a year doing something, coming to your customers and saying, we're doing an annual review. We've looked at our costs. We've looked at our, our business and feel that uh, this year our pricing will have to go up. Is, is a good discipline to have in your company, regardless of what's going on with the costs, because your pricing is really about their willingness to pay and recognize your value and mm. strictly a cost measure. That's a great way to put it. Um, it's, not it's not necessarily cost plus, it's value mm. created and value captured by way of pricing. 
But how does pricing power kind of figure into this, if at all? So for example, um, when you were counseling me about raising my prices, I don't want to say it was easier to say that, but maybe in some ways it was. I mean, we sold a software product that represented a small percentage of our customers' expenses, but was very material and important to their day-to-day operations, which is all to suggest that they were pretty willing to pay those price increases. What about the complete opposite end of the spectrum? So I'm thinking of like a commodity business where it's very much a price-driven decision and they basically make their profit on volume, not on you know unit economics or high margins per unit. If you're in that type of business, does that color your view on price increases in inflationary environments at all? Or is your advice more or less across the board? When it comes to pricing, Steve, nothing should be across the board. I mean, that's a, that's a great lesson to learn. learn. It's, it, it's much easier to do these things across the board. 10% increase across the board, everybody gets it. It's going to be painful. We're going to have to do it. I, th- I think that every customer is different. And if you're in a commodity-oriented business, there is even still customers that are different than other customers. You know, just the first test is kind of who's doing the buying? What kind of person is in those buying roles? Will, are they the stars of their company's business? And you're the kind of most attention that you're going to get from that customer is because you're the highest cost component. Generally, that's not the case. Generally, those buyers are moving on. You know, every time a buyer changes is a great time to come in and say, sorry, your price is going up. Uh, now, that, that's, that's a, a, a perhaps not a common strategy and, and your customers don't want to hear that that's what you do. But think about each customer as a different customer. Think about the product that you're providing them in a different way. And that willingness to pay, I think, is, is, is very important in, in kind of measuring, measuring that. So what I'm hearing is that if you had, let's say, I'll just make up numbers, um, 100 customers, you probably wouldn't you know, pass through a 10% price increase to 100 customers. Instead, you'd look at each of them and say, okay, well, this, this customer is going to get 10, this customer is going to get two, this customer is going to get five, et cetera. When you looked at your customer base, what types of things did you consider when deciding, hey, this is a 10% price increase customer, but this one's actually only a 5% price increase customer? Like, how did you differentiate, you know, what type of customer fell into which bucket? So we looked, we did the 80-20 rule. I mean, first of all, we looked at the top 20% of our, our customers and said, which ones of these kind of have different profiles and attempted to profile either how hard it was to do the quotes, uh, so non-cost related things, the returns, the, the amount of negotiation that we had, the difficulty we had with our customer ordering people, their ability to give us good forecasts, their ability to work with us on demand that they would see coming down the line, their future business with us, um, their requests for profit opportunities that we would see. So if a customer was forever falling behind in their ordering and requesting a quick delivery, we soon decided that we would charge an expediting fee for that and that they would be willing to pay. And their willing to pay on an expediting charge was amazingly Inflexible. So we would charge them for those kinds of activities. So we looked at a a range of opportunities across the customers to make them differentiated from each other. And then we turned to our cost system that was uh, kind of putting out the standard costs for some of these items. And we would, on the side, because we were only looking at the top 20% of our customers that yielded the, the more significant part of our revenue and profitability, we would look at what the costing was. And we'd start with the basis that the cost system had and then throw the rest of it out. Say, okay, now we're gonna kind of put factors in or adders in. How many steps does this process have? How much returns do the customer actually do? How difficult is it to work with their buyers? And we put factors against those things so that we then had a matrix of those customer profiles. And Steve, I will never advocate doing a 5%, a 2%, or a 10% price increase. You sh- no one should ever tell a customer that their price is going up 10%. It should always be 9.37 or 11.65. Uh, 
you want to, them to understand that you didn't just pull this number out of the air. You worked hard not to make it 15%, but instead you polished your numbers again to rework it back to 14.3%. So interesting. So in terms of, let's talk more about magnitude because it might be apparent to a lot of CEOs listening to this right now that, hey, we've got to increase prices. But they're trying to figure out, well, by how much? How should entrepreneurs think about the magnitude of the price increase? So for example, should it be a 5% increase or a 50% increase? Uh, should it be two or 10? Or you know, to use your structure, instead of two, it's 1.84. <laughs> instead of 10, it's 9.87. I mean, just, just how did you think through the magnitude of the price increase that you either could or should have passed through? And how should, how should CEOs think about that? You know, Steve, it's a great question because people, the tendency that CEOs that I work with and the investments that I've had and the new searchers that I see sitting, sitting in the CEO world for the first time is make it small. Don't be embarrassed to kind of go in with a big number. I totally disagree. Go with a big number. And go with a story. I mean, the, the story is almost more, is more important than the number because you want to be able to tell them, here's the number for now, 13.3%. There's probably going to be another one in another six months or, or maybe shorter, four months, because we're not sure if this is going to be uh, the conditions, the market conditions may change. Um, here's why we did it. Here are the costs, the story, the narrative about this process of which costs are being impacted and kind of related to their business. You've seen it in your business selling, you know, products to the coal mines or whatever your, your end product is. Um, then you want to highlight your, your other narrative, which are the, the reasons they should be buying for you that are willingness to pay your delivery responsiveness, your ability to quote quickly, your ability to turn around product when they need it really fast your ability to provide good quality and look at your track record for that. But that story can start with a higher number. And then in four months, you can come back and say, I said that we we're going to have another increase and it's going to be less this time than I predicted. And so your, your, your annual change, you've already predicated on the last time you had the 13.3% the, the increase. So build a narrative. Start with a high number. CEOs tell me, on my measure of how did their price increase do? Well, we didn't have any pushback. Then it was not high enough. Mm -hmm. And it takes, a, no matter how hard I, I work with, with uh, CEOs on this, it takes a couple of rounds of this self-confidence that your customers aren't going to leave. You want to have the ability to have a last look. And generally, if you've either done it with personal engagement and, the, and you're, you're kind of in front of the customer with the picture of your kids saying, we still got to eat. My kids are on the line here. This is my business now. It's really important. There's an emotional appeal to the, uh, to the buyer who's sitting across the table saying, okay, we expected 15%, but 13 is better. Thanks. Mm, almost anchoring a number in their head, um, which is, which is really interesting strategy. Let's talk a little bit about costs because we've talked about that. Um, quite a bit thus far. Um, and I remember you coaching me on understanding my own unit costs. And of course, you know, in my case, I was selling software. So it's not as if I was, you know, building something for a dollar of material cost and selling it for $2. It was a bit more nebulous than that. I guess at a general level though, and this has a direct increase or pardon me, a direct uh, relationship to pricing, in your experience, both as a CEO and as an investor, what do a lot of CEOs get wrong about understanding their own unit costs? They believe the numbers that are presented to them. Accounting systems are kind of estimates at one year at a time on a standard cost basis, trying to apply overhead and burden, which is called burden, and, and to, to either a labor rate or a machine rate. And it's not going to be accurate. It's not going to be right. And the expectation that the numbers that you're getting out of your accounting system are, are the correct numbers is, is a falsehood. You've got to have your own kind of side capability to, uh, to make that happen. 
I read a great book that's somewhat boring, but uh, written by Jonathan Brines, Islands of a Prophet, of Prophet in a Sea of Red Ink. Um, he says that 40% of revenues are unprofitable and 30% of the revenues cover all the rest of those losses. You've got to distinguish which ones those are. And if you do the unit costs kind of review in the same way that I talked about it earlier, which is kind of layering in the pluses and minuses of, of how the particular unit cost for this customer works or that particular product line works, you'll better have a better understanding of where you're not making as much margin, where you are making good margin, how you got into those situations. Generally, you find low margin pricing or low margin products in the unit cost assessment came from a story. Oh yeah, there was that competitor five years ago that was trying to beat us up. We never were able to recover it back. So instead of going in back and getting a 31% price increase, it kind of moved up with 5% a year or 10% a year and it got worse and worse. And you, you, those stories become pretty illuminating. You can make some changes to the practices of what you're doing with those customers. Perfect is the enemy of good. It doesn't have to be perfect, um, but it, it can be a model that, that you're using on the side to, to make sure that it happens. First of all, I love that book title. Whoever named that book should get some sort of award. Um, <laughs> but so 40% of revenues are unprofitable on average. That is a surprisingly high number to me. Um, was that the experience that you had, you know, when, when going through uh, your various rounds of price increases over the years? Or did you eventually kind of, if I can use this word, whittle your customer base down to the point that far less than 40% ultimately turned out to be unprofitable. Yeah, Steve, when you take over a company as, as a searcher, you know, you don't want to rock the boat too much. You need that revenue to, to deliver the similar levels of profitability that you've had over the years. So it might take a while before, in my case, it was like five years. And over those five years, we selectively fired customers. We fired them by raising their prices significantly. And when they didn't go away, we're now making them profitable, much more profitable than they've been in the past. And it, it felt good to make that happen. But we did it as our volume increased in new business and we replaced the old business that wasn't as profitable in a different way. And it's much harder in the, in the, in the software business to, to look at some of these cost-based kinds of premises when you, your, your soft costs are more difficult to, to assess. But You know, what's, what's unique about price increases is that, you know, specifically in an environment like we find ourselves in, we've got a war, we've got inflation, we've got the stock market, you know, um, losing significant amounts of value there. I mean, if we're not already in a, in a recession, um, then there's a very real possibility that we will be. So similar to March and April, 2020, when there was a lot of belt tightening and CEOs are trying to figure out, you know, how do I get more cash on my balance sheet? How do I get more liquidity? If you look at all the levers that a CEO can pull, right? They can slow down their payables. They can speed up their receivables collections. They can uh, buy less inventory. Maybe they can try to sell more in terms of volume. What differentiates price increases from all of those levers is that it's instantaneous. Um, so it's way faster. It's the fastest lever that I can think of. And it also falls straight to your bottom line, uh, which none of the other ones that I just mentioned do. Absolutely right. Um, it, 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 however, let me say this, it's the CEO's responsibility to implement it. And no one in your chain of command is going to be coming to you saying, Hey, Steve, we want you to raise prices. It'll feel good to us if you raise prices now. We can, we can go implement that for you. In general, the salespeople are looking for lower prices to get kind of into a competitive situation and provide value to the customer by saying, we can do it by price. Uh, your CFO might be pushing you a little bit, but worried about next, next month's volume. You're, you're going to have to make these decisions on your own. And uh, you're right. It's the easiest one to impact the bottom line. And if you do the math about kind of depending on what your margin level is, 
how much business you could afford to lose and still be ahead of the game with a price increase, it gives you some comfort that it's worth the risk of losing some customers along the way. And as I said before, it's your job as CEO to say, we're going to do this and I'm not going to blame or fire anybody if they get it wrong. If we do lose a customer, it's my fault. Oh, and everybody takes a deep breath and says, yeah, you sure? Yep, you've been telling us about getting more volume. Yes, but in this case, if we lose some volume, but the margins improve, we need that drop through to the bottom line more importantly than we need more volume. You know, you hit on a really interesting point um, because I want to ask you about communication. So I'll ask you kind of a two-part question. Um, and, and I please be as tactical as you can be. So the first question is, you know, tactically speaking, how should CEOs actually communicate price increases to customers? I mean, are we calling them individually? Are we sending an email? Are we writing them a physical letter? Are we giving a bunch of explanation or kind of a high level explanation? So kind of as tactical as you can think of, but your most recent answer sparked a different question, which is how do you communicate it to employees? Because the, the, the reason why that question came to mind is because when I proposed my first price increase, you know, maybe within my first year or so as a CEO, my employees acted as if the sky was falling, that this is going to cripple the business. You know, we're going to go out of business tomorrow, et cetera. They were very, very fearful. So I probably didn't do a good enough job of communicating it. So maybe if you could talk to communication, both to customers and to employees. Yeah, I, you know, I used to have monthly meetings with all employees so I could tell them what was going on in the business. And as we saw these inflationary periods coming at us, I would explain that we, we have to extract more pricing from our customers and that's gonna be important. The, the front line of customer interfacing employees, the customer service reps or the salespeople, maybe your sales managers, maybe the people in quality or the service people that are out there are the ones who every day try to do a good job for their customers. I mean, I don't know how many times I heard kind of a, a customer service person come get off the phone and say, yes, I, I think I'll try to do better for you. Let me see what I can get to make this happen. Uh, either a better delivery or a better price in some cases or better terms of some kind. And I would have to say, look, remember, the, the, the profitability of our company is dependent on your first line response to a customer. And your obligation is to the company, not to the customer. So Steve, one of the uh, general mindsets that has to be changed in the beginning takes a while, took us a couple of years before our our, our, our customer-facing employees were talking to customers to give them some narratives to talk about why it was important for us to pass on those cost increases. So they, they needed, they can't be just told, increase the price for this customer 8.4%. They need to have a narrative because our energy costs have gone on X, our fuel costs have gone up this, the electricity that we use to run the extrusion press has gone up, our raw materials have changed, so give them the narrative around costs. The second narrative that always has to be kind of at the same time is the narrative about value. So the willingness to pay factor. What are the elements that customers need to be reminded about our value proposition? Whether it's delivery, whether it's a good quality system, whether it's ISO certification, those kinds of details should be included in that narrative. If you don't have customers that you can kind of either write a letter to or are big enough, the CEO needs to go there, needs to do an 80-20 analysis on who's gonna make this call with the, with the salesperson for this particular customer. Maybe in person, maybe over the phone, maybe it, it, again, as I talked before, it should be different for each customer and each category of customer. So those are the, the kinds of tricks and make it personal. Um, doesn't, doesn't hurt to be the one who carries the water on a price increase to your biggest customer. This is really difficult for me. We waited as long as we could. Continue with the narrative. Doesn't look like we'll have to do it till six months from now, but it could be shorter. It may be an additional 15%. So get them focused on, on the future so they can do some planning and then surprise them when you change your mind and it's somewhat less in a little bit longer period of time. You know, when I uh, did my first price increase, um, we had somewhere in the neighborhood of maybe 350 customers at the time, something like that. 
and I remember writing the letter. So what I did is I wrote a letter and I included it. Uh, I sent it to every customer signed by me with my own personal you know, cell phone number, uh, invited them to, to reach out to me at any time. And I remember agonizing over this letter. I spent an embarrassing amount of time wordsmithing it. I agonized over, you know, do I put this in? Do I put that in? You know, when I finally hit send, I was expecting to be to receive an avalanche of problems and issues and questions. And to my surprise, of 350 or so customers, probably fewer than five reached out to me. Uh, and in fact, most customers didn't even notice it. Uh, they just kind of paid the invoice um, and they didn't necessarily realize that it was, you know, for example, $5 higher than the last invoice they paid. So to your point, probably means I didn't raise it high enough. In fact, it's, it's very evident that I didn't raise it high enough. Um, but I think the number one reason, well, I mean, you tell me, I suspect the number one reason why CEOs don't raise them fast enough or high enough is fear of losing customers. So what do you say to those CEOs? I think what I've heard you say is, hey, maybe it's the unprofitable customers who are going to leave, which is not the worst thing in the world. Um, and any lost profit from the few customers that leave might be funded by the higher profit that you'll get from the customers that actually paid. Is there anything else that you would say to CEOs who are fearful of losing customers as a result of a price increase? Yes. Make sure you get a last look. So in general, customers don't want to change vendors. They have a relationship. They, have, they know how things get paid. It's a pain in the neck. They got to put in a new vendor. It's a risk for them. So you want to make sure that there's a little out somewhere where if, if you do have a problem with this, don't hesitate to call me or that your salespeople or your customers facing people are asking some questions around, are you looking at competition or not? And of course, uh, this is a negotiation. Searchers in general and CEOs in general, nobody likes negotiating. This is not a lot of fun to do all this. Uh, but you want to have made sure that your price increase has enough wiggle room in it for a slight improvement for your customer if they push back. Um, another technique that works well is look at, look at your purchasing or procurement department and have them save all of the letters that are coming in asking for and requesting a price increase on the products that you're buying or the services that you're using because they've spent some amount of time. They've got some good, good answers to steal from. So copy shamelessly from what other people have spent. You know, you, you said you spent hours over that, that initial outreach to your customers. Well, let's hope that somebody else looked at that and said, this is awesome. I'm going to modify it for us and, and use it in that way for us. But I think you're right. The fear and lack of confidence can be overcome with some experience, with some successes at it. And you don't have to do all your price increases at once. You can test this because many of us have customers that don't talk to each other. There's not a published price list. Try it with a small, a quarter of them and see what happens and make your adjustments to, well, then I should try it a little bit higher on the, on the next quarter. Yeah. and do it over a four-week period and uh, give yourself the confidence and, and prove out with A-B testing. The final thing I'd say is that, interestingly enough, artificial intelligence can help with this. There are some products available for companies that do a lot of pricing with a variety of different customers that allow you to put in those variables about uh, the size of the order, the size of the customer, the relative de demand that the customer has, the kind of product that they buy, the value-added services that they're attracted to. And you can automate some of these things by putting in the customer's name, what they want to buy, and it spits out an answer for you. And all those variables that were in the back of your mind or that you put together in your cost analysis can be built into those projects so they're worth looking at. Um, and at the end of the the podcast, I'll give you the name of one particular company that I think does a pretty good job with this. If you're in a business that got, has a lot of products that you're trying to price. I love the idea of testing it. So in a customer base of 500, test it on some small percentage and just see what happens. Um, I think CEOs, including me, regularly underestimate how powerful 
testing can be. And so it's a, it's a proxy for experience, right? It's a way to give yourself yes. experience really quickly. And the other thing that, that you said that really resonated with me is like, you don't have to do this all at once, which is to say, you know, if you're regularly, let's say, you know, let's say you run a business for 10 years, right? Again, I'm just kind of making this number up and you raise prices by a very palatable amount each year. Let's call that four to 5% every year. Eventually, each of those 5% price increases will start compounding on the previous 5% price increases. And before you know it, at the end of 10 years, the margin that you're getting from that same group of you know, 300 customers or whatever it is, is exponentially higher than it used to be because of the power of compounding. Right. And you want the most profitable customers. You don't want the least profitable customers. And that, that should be one of your focuses. You don't want all the business that's out there. You want the most profitable business with customers who are willing to pay you a number of in their pricing that makes you more profitable. And you can do lots of things with those profits. You can hire more engineers. You can hire more people. You can you know, use it internally to develop new products. And it's, this is not something you should be embarrassed about or, or fear. It, it makes life easier. When we had profitable customers, we felt good about it. As we begin to wrap here, Jim, um, I want to talk about the opposite side of a price increase, which I presume many CEOs are uh, dealing with this right now, which is they are receiving price increases from their vendors. And, and you talked about this a little bit at the beginning of our, of our conversation today. Um, what are some lessons that you've learned or experiences that you can share as it relates to being the recipient of price increases? The first is prepare to negotiate. You know, business is about negotiating. Search is all about negotiating. All those sellers that you talk to, the whole range of what are you anchoring at? What are you listening to? Make the first offer. So when somebody, some of your vendors come in, first categorize them 80-20. Don't be spending the time on the little ones that are gonna sell you ballpoint pens and the price is going up. Look at the costs of her from the various service providers that you have that make sense for you to be engaged in and do some pushing back, give them a target. We'd prefer to see this number and make them kind of react to your number as opposed to their number. Talk to them about, will this come back down? What elements of this cost increase will be adjusted when we're out of the inflationary numbers? When the price of gasoline comes down, will you come back to me with a cost reduction? Oh, is that an embarrassing one? Because you want in, in some, in, I was in the aluminum business. We learned never to talk about the cost of aluminum in any basic dollars and cents because we didn't want to have to come back when the aluminum price went down and say, your, your costs are, are pegged to that number. Try to avoid that would be a, a tactic. But you, you want to make sure that when you're talking to your vendors, you are listening to their narrative. You're listening to them say, well, what if we, can we extend our terms to you? Can we start to take a bigger discount? Are there some other things on the table that can help us understand how to cost this? The biggest one you can ask for is a, a discount to pay in seven days. Your accounting system can handle that. And you can say, you know, if we pay early, can we take a 5% discount for this? And there are some companies that are so cash strapped that, all right, we'll give you the price increase and you'll take it, but we'll give you a 5% discount to collect cash sooner. Maybe two different parts of their accounting department are talking to them about this and they're measuring it in a different way. So the, the, the most important thing, Steve, I think you can take away from this is be prepared to negotiate and push back a little bit delay it. Ask, can I have it next June instead of if it's January, can I get six more months? Can I buy product in advance? And you know your own cash position. Does it make sense to put some of that raw material or product on your shelves for the six months and protect it with, with pricing? Now, don't go to your own customers and say, look, we have a six-month holiday because I was able to keep prices the same on all our raw materials. No, no, you want to make profitability on your on your, on your scope be important for you. So there are a number of things I think you can do with your vendors to, uh, to make sure that they know they're gonna have to kind of get some pushback from you if, you if they're gonna be raising your costs as time goes on. That's great. A lot of levers that, that CEOs can pull. The, the other thing that comes to mind from my own experience, um, not related to inflation, but I guess related to macroeconomic uncertainty, in my case, the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, 
you know, not all vendors are created equally, which is to say that, um, you know, negotiating leverage, if you will, differs across vendors. So in our case, as a software company, basically our operating expenses were really simple. It was payroll and rent, right? Those are basically mm-hmm. the two uh, major OPEX categories. Everything else was very small. As it relates to rent, I mean, this sounds very obvious in retrospect, but we quickly learned that one lever that we could pull um, in the early days of the pandemic, when everyone was very, very uncertain about what was going to happen, is we would just stop paying our landlord. Um, and the reason why is because if you think about it from a landlord's perspective, and, and I don't mean to be flippant, but it would be incredibly disruptive, incredibly time-consuming, and incredibly expensive for that landlord to kick you out and try to get a new tenant in there. So it is very much in their best interest to keep you, which is all to say that as a tenant, you might have a bit more negotiating leverage than perhaps you appreciate with your landlord. Not that I suggest that you you become cavalier with your rent payments, but to the extent that you really need to pull a lever to manage liquidity, for example, um, a landlord comes to mind as in certain situations, a vendor over whom CEOs may have more leverage than they might appreciate. Steve, you're so right. I think beyond rent, you can do this with the top 20% of the cost structure in your business and do it in a way experimentally, just stop paying for your phone bill and see how long it takes for the for the vendor to either take action or notice or begin to tell you what the penalty is for doing that so that if you do become in, in a liquidity crunch, you can know how long it's going to take the electric company to show up. What's the, the payroll service that you're using if you don't pay them? Just to know that information and to manage your liquidity if you need it. Um, so I think that's a great, a great practice, not just for rent, just stop paying and see what happens. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And don't do it all at once and kind of just mark it down in your, each vendor that you deal with, what their, what their pain point is in terms of how much you can get away with if you need it in a liquidity crunch. And it's amazing what happens if you just ask, like in my experience, um, most people just don't ask their vendors. So you could do, I mean, the exercise that you just mentioned, rank you know, your top 20% of your vendors based on the dollar amount that you pay them or the percentage of sales or whatever the metric is, and just ask them. So you know, another, another vendor that came to mind was actually the accounting firm that we used. Mm-hmm. Again, this was in COVID, so you know, rather non-representative times. But we just said, hey, you know, we've been paying you X for all the services, you know, going forward, you know, we'd really appreciate if we could pay you Y and, you know, we'll remain a customer. We'll continue referring new customers to you. And I'm oversimplifying a little bit here, but they basically said, okay. Um, And if I didn't ask, I never would have gotten that, but I I was surprised by the power of, you know, as simple as this sounds, just asking. Right. And the leverage that you have is the more we buy from you or the more consistently we buy from you, we expect that you're going to get some efficiency in providing that service to us. And consequently, we'd like to participate in that savings just by asking that way. I mean, it's hard to argue back. You better be prepared when your customers are doing this to you when you're kind of negotiating for higher pricing. Yeah, yeah. Jim, is there anything else that you want to say to our listeners that maybe you haven't yet said or any questions or comments or thoughts that you want to leave them with? You know, this is hard. It requires some negotiation. I think the the biggest emphasis I can make is that the CEO is the one who has to lead this charge by example, and it doesn't come naturally. It's not something that kind of everybody shows up and says, I know how to do this marketing story, or I can put this strategic plan together, or I can uh, pitch this new product easily. This is complicated and takes some effort. And there's a lot of different levers. And when you find yourself as a CEO taking the easy route with pricing, you're probably making a mistake. Nothing about pricing is easy. It takes care, it takes energy, it takes risk, it takes getting over your fear. But it does take practice and it gets better with practice. It is easier to do the more experience you have understanding your customers and understanding what happened the last time. So I'll leave you with that kind of the same is true for search. Search takes practice. The more you do, the better you're off at it. 
And as I, as I mentioned earlier, pricing increases is all about negotiating and developing those negotiating skills. And anytime you have an opportunity to educate yourself better about negotiating tactics and practices, you should be doing it as a CEO. Great place to end. Um, Jim, you've made a huge difference for me personally and professionally over the past 10 years. And uh, I consider myself lucky to call you a friend and a mentor. And uh, I know everyone listening considers themselves uh, lucky to have benefited from your, your wisdom and experience today. So thank you for um, being generous with your time and thank you for sharing your insights with us. Steve, it, it always feels great for me to be able to give back to this community. It made such a significant impact on my career and my life and my business, my family, that my ability to kind of share some experiences like this through these podcasts or blogs or one-on-one -on -one is, uh, is very fulfilling to me. And it means a lot that you uh, asked me to do this. Thank you again. Hey guys, Steve here. Just a few final reminders before you take off today. Remember that you can check out the show notes from today at inthetrenches.net forward slash podcast, where I include a list of all of the questions that I asked today, as well as where to skip to in the audio to listen to any given question, links to each of the resources that we discussed, and finally, a written transcript of our discussion that you can download to highlight, copy, take notes, or otherwise use as you see fit. Lastly, if you are so inclined, it would be much appreciated if you could leave a quick rating on the Apple Podcast app or wherever you happen to listen to In the Trenches. More and better ratings help me attract better guests, which I ultimately hope will benefit you. Thanks again for listening, and I will see you next time.